0: Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. So this morning, rather than just have an opening verse, I'm going to preach through the entire book of, or the chapter of Acts chapter 10 and just work my way through the text. And this is part of the series we've been doing on redemption. So we preached two sermons on repentance. We talked about our need for God. We talked about justification by faith. Uh, Two weeks ago, we talked about baptism and why baptism is important and what baptism is. Uh, Water baptism, but now this week talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And when I started thinking about how to approach this, there are so many ways that we could approach what it means to be filled with the Spirit of God. I am approaching one very narrow part of this. There's a lot more to what it means to be Spirit-filled. I'm just going to approach one side of this. And I chose to do it through a story. I thought rather than just explain how or what's happening, I think it's helpful if you see what's happening in a story. In the book of Acts, uh, it, it literally means the Acts of the Apostles or what the Apostles did. This is what the, the people did. It's the story, the narrative of that church in the first century. So in Acts chapter 10, verse 1, and this is on page 918. Okay, so you have it, 918. <clears throat> acts chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all of his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God." So this is a man, jumping into the story, Cornelius is a man who is not a disciple of Jesus Christ yet. Yet he fears God, and he prays and he is a a leader in the the roman military a centurion of what was known as the italian cohort so he is a leader in the roman military probably not a lot of believers in that particular group of people but he is he is someone who believes in god he has believed in god before jesus comes along so his His conversion is probably more along the lines of his Jewish influence because Jesus is a fairly uh, recent event in history. So he has an established relationship with God. He's praying. He is God-honoring. He gives. But he's not a Christian. To be a Christian you have to be a Christ follower. And the centurion Cornelius is not a Christian. He is not a disciple of Jesus Christ yet. I think that's noteworthy to point out that there are people out there who love God and pray and God hears them and yet they are not where God wants them to be. We do not have a copyright on God. God is not bound to any denomination, any dogma, any particular movement. God is only bound by His Word. And His allegiance is not to man, His allegiance is to His own glory. But it is foolish for any group of people to think that they somehow have a corner or a copyright on the Almighty God of the universe. There are people who are in progressive steps of relationship with God who are living out their faith the best they know how, and yet God has more for those people. And in verse 3, about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror, as we all would if an angel showed up and called us by name. He stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter, He is lodging with another Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. And what we start to see here in Acts 10 is how God supernaturally connects two people together who do not know each other. This is why it's evangelism through the work of the Holy Spirit. This is how God works. God can and does do supernatural things like this. He's connecting people who don't know each other. He's ordering their steps. And then verse 7, When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called, him, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. So what kind of prayer life did Peter have? The sixth hour of the day is roughly noon. We're saying the day roughly starts at our 6 o'clock in the morning. Uh, their day so this would be roughly around noon and Peter goes up to the rooftop and he is praying at lunch and in verse 10 it says and he became hungry and wanted something to eat but while they were preparing it so he's on the roof praying somebody downstairs is preparing food says he fell into a trance now Cornelius doesn't know what Peter is experiencing they don't know each other but at Cornelius is experiencing this saying, there's an angel saying, go find this man named Peter. And then Peter has this vision, but Peter doesn't know when he has this vision what God is doing with Cornelius. But God is coordinating and working everything out in His perfect time. In verse 11, this is speaking of Peter, "...He saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth." And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him Rise, Peter, kill and eat. So in this trance, in this vision, Peter sees this sheet held on all four corners and it's lowering all of these animals. And the Lord tells him, Peter, you need to, to rise and kill these animals and eat. And Peter says, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Now, here Peter is referring to the Old Testament. Peter's thinking about all those laws about, you know, I can't eat pork uh, and I can't eat bacon. And, you know, bacon is proof that the new covenant is better than the old, right? We get to eat bacon in the new covenant. Uh, but, yes, it's, it's a reason to shout. But in Peter's mind, this is really what he's thinking about. I mean, hey, there are animals there, Lord, that I don't don't touch and I don't eat. It was unclean because it was forbidden by the law of Moses. Verse 15, the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean do not call common. Now, what God is doing to Peter has very little to do with what God wants Peter to eat for lunch. This, the animals, the unclean animals. Although that's true, that you're no longer bound by these laws. That's not what Peter's. That's not what God's trying to communicate to Peter. God is communicating to Peter. He's using that as a as a metaphor to say there's a bigger picture here that has to do with Cornelius as a Gentile. There's a bigger picture at play here. But God's using this as a as a metaphor as an example. The law. They kept the law, the Jews kept the law to keep them separated from the Gentiles. The end of the law, which Christ was the fulfillment of the law, the end of the law, that Old Testament ritual, Christ was the fulfillment of that and Christ broke down the wall of separation so that now there is neither Jew nor Gentile, but we are all one in Jesus Christ. So verse 16 says, This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate. So Peter has this vision, and when the vision's over, God in His perfect providence coordinates it so that the guys from Cornelius' house are showing up at his front door. And they called out to ask whether Simon, who is Peter, called Peter was lodging there and while Peter was pondering the vision the spirit spoke to him and said behold three men are looking for you I want you to know this morning that God still speaks through his spirit I have made much here in the last three months about God speaking through his word and he does and this is the final authority but we must be people who still know that God speaks to us through His Spirit. He talks to His people directly through the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. The voice of the Spirit of God that's in our hearts will never violate God's Word. If God tells you something and it violates this book, you did not hear from God. That was not the voice of God. This book is to keep us on track. I took a class five, six years ago at a seminary in Fort Worth. It was a biblical counseling class. And one of the professors, Frank Catanzaro, who was, uh, he was this Italian guy that just, his sense of humor was like, a lot of people try to be funny in art. He just genuinely was a, he used humor very well to communicate. Uh, but he was telling the story years ago, probably decades ago, he was counseling this woman and now there is a there is a scripture in Corinthians that talks about a it's an actual incident that's going on in the church where this woman has taken her husband's son the indication that is probably a stepson um, but it's it's definitely it's a violation there and Paul just takes him to task you cannot allow this thing to go on in your church and so Zero said he had this woman come to him in the church and say. Uh, <clears throat> You know, I'm, uh, I'm going to marry uh, my stepson. I'm, I'm divorcing my husband. She was married. She said, I'm divorcing my husband to marry his son. Me, me and her, his son's going to get together. And Catanzaro said, he, he slid the Bible over and opened up. He said, the Bible already talks about that. He goes, you can't do that. And she said, oh, don't worry about it. Me and the Lord have already worked it out. And he said, if it weren't for the fact of desecrating a Bible, he said, I so desperately, I just almost just took the page and just ripped it out and threw it in the trash and say, here, here's, here's a special Bible just for you. You don't have to pay attention to that page anymore because evidently you and God have it worked out. Obviously her and God did not have it worked out. Her and God, she was justifying things in her mind. I, I had lunch with a, a pastor this week who told me that this past week, uh, a man walked into his church <clears throat> service and wearing a uh, he had a shofar, one of these horns that you blow, like his giant shofar he had strapped around his neck and he told the pastor, the Lord has called me to uh, to visit churches <clears throat> and uh, blow the trumpet of warning of the coming wrath of God or whatever. He said, as I started talking to this guy, you know he said his uh, You know, it was obvious to where he was at in his life. He really needed to focus more on him rather than being a traveling guy, blowing a shofar, warning people of God's judgment. But the man had said, God has told me to do this. So my point is when people think that God has told them to do something. Now I'm not saying that God didn't tell this guy to do that. I don't know that. I'm not God. But what he talked to me about... Uh, my friend talked to me about where this guy was at in his life. Uh, There was probably, he needed to probably focus on those things. Uh, His life didn't need, uh, it wasn't quite where it needed to be. There were some things internally that he needed to address. Uh, But when somebody just says, well, God, God told me, That's the ultimate trump card. How do you you go against that if somebody said God told me? Well, that's why we have the Scriptures. That's why we have the Word of God because this book is infallible and God will and does and will continue to speak to people directly. But if God speaks to you something directly to you, it will not violate the principles that are in this book. The Bible says test the spirits to know whether or not they are from God. And One way that we can test the spirits and test those voices because The voices, the voice that we hear oftentimes that we think is God may not be God. And I'm not going to go into how all we can know and how do we exactly know what is the voice of God. I think those are things that even as mature Christians, they still struggle with that. Uh, What exactly is the voice of God? There have been times in my life where I thought I heard the voice of God but wasn't sure. And when things did not turn out that I thought it was the voice of God, I had to admit later that God didn't tell me that because if God would have told me that it would have come to to pass Uh, so we're on shaky ground there sometimes that's why we have the book that's why God speaks to this book through this book if you want a word from God go to this book God will give you a word from this book but in Acts 10 God spoke directly to Peter and we have to know that God can speak directly to us and he said rise and go down this is God speaking to Peter rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation for I have sent them and Peter went down to the men and said I am the one you were looking for what is the reason for your coming and they said Cornelius a centurion an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by of the whole Jewish nation it's one of the reasons why we think that his, his his dedication to God, Cornelius' devotion to God comes from a Jewish influence. The Jews respect this man and he is a, remember who he is, he is a leader in an occupying force that is occupying the Jewish nation against their will and yet they still respect this man. Cornelius, well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So Cornelius is going to take Peter serious and hear and believe what he has to say because an angel told him to listen. So in verse 23, So he invited them in to be his guests. And the next day he rose and went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and he had called together his relatives and close friends. So Cornelius is gathering all the people he knows, saying, Hey, now a lot of his relatives and friends probably think he's kind of crazy because he's saying, Hey, an angel showed up to me uh, in prayer and said, Go find this guy. This guy's coming. This guy's showing up. So he's gathering all of his friends and family. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. And Peter lifted him up and saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit any one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, Why did you send for me? And Cornelius said four days ago about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of a Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded of the Lord." So this is, this is just continues. This is Cornelius and Peter being joined supernaturally by the work of the Holy Spirit. And Peter opened his mouth in verse 34 and said, "...Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now Peter is getting this from his vision. Peter has the vision that the animals come down in the sheet. No, Lord, I can't eat those animals. They're unclean. God says, no, what I've called clean, you don't call unclean. And now Peter realizes, okay, Lord, you're showing me that this is about Cornelius, this Roman, this Gentile. Uh, He is someone that we can worship with. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear." Now what is, what is Peter preaching here? Well, In essence, Peter is preaching the gospel. He's telling the story the death the burial the resurrection saying God anointed this Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and he went about doing good and healing the sick and casting out devils and then you in response to that you crucified him because Jesus claimed not to just be a man anointed with the Holy Spirit he claimed to be the eternal God in flesh he claimed to be that Old Testament Yahweh the one that they worshipped and as the partial video that we saw Paul thinks he's doing justice Paul thinks he's doing right by going in and he's, he's protecting what the people of God had known for centuries he's protecting against against false gods and false messiahs and in Paul's mind he's doing the kingdom of God justice and Peter's just retelling that story you all killed him you hung him on a tree but God raised him on the third day. He's preaching the gospel. I hope we don't ever think that the gospel is too elementary and too basic and too simple. To think, well everyone knows that. It, you know, we need something else besides that. It, it, it's just white noise. We never get beyond our need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the essence. It is the, the central message of the church. And the gospel is what saved us initially in that gospel message that allegiance, that faith, that trust in Jesus Christ as the Messiah is what will keep us throughout our walk with God. So Peter continues in verse 41. In verse 40 he says that God made him to appear, in verse 41, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with Him after He rose from the dead. And He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that He is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. And to Him all the prophets, he's preaching back in the Old Testament, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in Him re- receives forgiveness of sins through His name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on those who heard the Word. Peter is preaching Jesus and the Holy Spirit arrives just like it did in Acts 2. There had to have been a correlation in Peter's mind that this is what happened on the Day of Pentecost. On the Day of Pentecost, Peter tells pretty much the same story. He tells it in a little more depth. He goes into a little bit more Old Testament. But he leads right up and says, this. This man Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. And this is the response that Peter gets is that in Acts 2.37 that they were pricked in their hearts. They were condemned and they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? I mean, we have blood on our hands. It is, I think of the philosopher of Nietzsche's famous saying, Time Magazine only grabbed a portion of that proclaiming decades ago that God is dead. Uh, the front of Time magazine, but Nietzsche is the one who said God is dead. But that wasn't his whole saying. Nietzsche said God is dead, and we have killed him, and we cannot wash the blood off our hands. Uh, and there, it's it was much more to what Nietzsche was trying to say. He was it was a it was a secular conversation about what we've done with with religion, and it was Nietzsche's uh, pushing back against God. He certainly was not a believer, uh, but. Nietzsche is saying that the last line that never gets quoted is God is dead and we have killed Him and we cannot wash the blood off our hands. And when I think of Acts 2.37, I think this is what was going through their minds in Acts 2.37 is we killed Christ. Like Christ died and we killed Him and we cannot wash the blood off our hands. They verbalize that in the phrase, men and brethren, what shall we do? We killed Jesus. What are we supposed to do? And out of that response, Peter then begins to, to preach the message of, of baptism in water and spirit. That was in response to that question. And so in Peter's mind here in Acts 10, this, this same idea, the same thing. Peter starts preaching Jesus. And we don't know how many other times this happened that is not recorded in Scripture. I mean, Acts is grabbing the highlights. We don't know of other stories where Peter could have Went into situations and settings like this and preached Jesus, and the Holy Spirit fell. This was a, a ministry that God had given Peter. But Peter preaches Jesus just like he did in Acts chapter 2. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4, Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, says that when the gospel came, God bore witness with signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His own will. According to His own will means that the Spirit of God is free and sovereign in the way that He gives His gifts and the way that God works His miracles. 1 Corinthians 12 says the same thing, and all of these gifts are inspired by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills as God wills. Not necessarily as we will. He is free. The moving of the Spirit of God, the operation of the gifts of the Spirit of God is by the will of God. He wills it to happen. We cannot make it happen. We can be sensitive to His presence. We can seek Him, but it is God who must give the Spirit and work through the gifts of the Spirit. I've known of a a preacher in Topeka, Kansas. I believe he's... I'm sure he's still there. The pastor's in Topeka, Kansas. Let me back up. I know it's in Kansas. It may not be Topeka. I can't remember exactly what town he's in. But anyway, this pastor has had the gift. God has gifted this pastor to pray for women who are barren, who cannot have children. And God healed these women. I'm not saying God has healed every single one of them, but it's Enough that that's what he's known for. It's one of the things he's known for. The number one thing he's known for is being a soul winner. Uh, he, he he, He teaches home Bible studies and that's his thing, is to be a soul winner through home Bible studies. But he had a ministry that God used him in. Now, God doesn't use everybody in that gift in that ministry. But that was a particular gift that God chose. I've known people who have had very particular giftings in their ministry that were not for everybody. And so when you look at other people, be careful to say, well, I I know it's natural. It's kind of natural in us to kind of be envious to say, hey, I wish God would use me in that way. And we can pray for those things, but God isn't going to use everybody in the same way. God has a ministry for everybody, but that ministry is going to look different in everybody's individual lives. Paul uses the analogy in his writings of the body. And he says, are you all the hand? Are you all the feet? And he says things like, hey, can the eye smell or the ear taste? He goes, no, you all have your individual functions. But together, this is why it's not a one-man, a one-woman operation, that together, the body of Christ, we are the body of Christ, and everybody has their own giftings. I am not going to be as gifted and as good at a lot of things that a lot of you are. You're going to have giftings and talents and skills. that just, it's not my thing. And vice versa. And it's the same for everybody. I mean, everybody's going to have a different, not just a different natural skill set because it's not always about what do I bring to the table naturally. That's that's the secular world. That's That's the business world. Do you have what it takes inside of you to do this? God doesn't approach it that way. God says, I'm going to gift you the things. And one area that we have to be aware of, one way that God works is that God works through weakness. A lot of times the way in the area that God uses you will be through your weakest point. Why? Because the Scripture says that no flesh will glory in His presence. I have watched, I've watched preachers. Uh, Enoch Arnold is a preacher who I heard him preach as a teenager a couple times uh, at another church. He came through the area and Enoch Arnold could barely speak. He's hard to understand. He doesn't have... There's something wrong with the palate of his, his mouth. I don't. It's missing or there's something there. And Enoch Arnold is the last guy on earth that you think would ever be called to preach the gospel. You think that the guy that preaches needs to be eloquent or at least be able to be understood when he talks. But Enoch Arnold would get up and, and was a masterful evangelist all over the country. And people... He was hard to understand. Was a, a guy that... Uh, I know several here would know um, Alan Oggs. Alan Oggs was world famous. And he had, I don't remember exactly what the condition he had, but Alan Oggs was hard to understand to speak. He had a, a physical disability. And it was apparent to meet him that he had a physical disability. Uh, but Alan Oggs was worldwide known. He was on radio programs, they would interview him. Uh, Alan Oggs told the story one time. He loved to do landscaping. He, his yard was his pride and joy, and he had the most beautiful yard in the neighborhood. Flowers, his grass, everything. And someone, one day a neighbor stopped and talked to his daughter and said, I think it is so great that you people employ somebody like that to take care of your yard. They said, who, who is he? And she said, well, she said, we call him dad. Uh, you know, it's it, 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 the lady couldn't fathom. You know, like, oh, that's so great. It was apparent to somebody driving by that the guy doing the landscaping, that there was something, there was a disability there. But God used him marvelously. A lot of times God will use us in the area of our weakness. John, in John 3, compares the freedom of the spirit to the freedom of the wind. Now, we've talked about this before, but in... 101, the Old Testament's written in Hebrew, the New Testament's written in Greek for the most part. There's some Aramaic sprinkled through there, but it's basically a Hebrew and Greek Bible. And in both Hebrew and Greek, they don't have a word for wind and spirit. There's only one word in both languages. The idea was indistinguishable. They just they had one word for both. So when Jesus talks about the wind in John 3, or the Spirit, He's using the word for wind. The idea is interchangeable. So when Jesus plays on that in His conversation with Nicodemus and says, the wind blows where it will, and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it came from or where it goes. So Jesus is talking about the literal wind. He's in a conversation with Nicodemus. He said, Nicodemus, you go outside, The wind blows. You feel it. You don't know exactly where it's coming from. You don't know where it's going. It just does what it wants. You don't control the wind. And then Jesus says, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is as free as the wind. You don't see Him. You don't control Him. You don't make Him come and go any more than you can rule the wind. He is free and sovereign to do as He will. And that's the way that He came in Acts chapter 10. Before the sermon was over, suddenly the Holy Spirit revealed Himself. And in verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on those who heard the word. The question I have for us this morning is, is there any correlation between the way that Peter preached and the coming of the Holy Spirit and power? I don't mean did Peter make Him come because he's free. Peter can't make that happen. I simply mean, is there something about the sermon that might increase the likelihood that the Spirit would choose to come at that moment? In another, say it another way, if Peter was up there telling jokes, do you think the Holy Spirit would have fell? If Peter would have told Cornelius how much more effective his personal witness would be because of his money and his position, which happens a lot in modern Christianity. Oh, if we could just get this person! You know, a couple of years ago, whenever it was, when a large music name came to Christianity, everybody said, "Oh, people will come to faith if we can just..." And, and man, he was all the mega churches were grabbing him and bringing him in because if we can just get somebody like that to come in, people will come to faith. But it never works that way. And Peter didn't try to leverage that. Peter didn't tell Cornelius in the sermon i'm so glad that it was you that god chose to connect me with because man we're going to go places you know we're kind of an ostracized look down upon people a lot of people want to kill us uh, but man if we can connect with you we can really go far peter doesn't bring that approach at all j.i packer who was one of the most influential people in christianity in the 20th century died in his 90s last year wrote a wonderful book called knowing god uh, but J. I. Packer said, the essence of the Holy Spirit's ministry is this. At this or any time in the Christian era, it is to mediate the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the Holy Spirit is what makes Jesus real to people. The Holy Spirit is what takes Christ from being a 2,000 year old personality, that we're disciple of, disciples of through His teaching that's in a book. This is why Christianity is completely different from any other religion. You can join other religions and become disciples of the person who wrote a book, whose teachings. You can become a disciple of Buddha. Buddha is not really considered divine in Buddhism. Uh, it's not, He's not worshipped as a a deity but there is sort of, i mean, there is a level of worship in terms of respect and honor but he's not elevated to say the level of like an Allah. Uh, But you can devote yourself to the teachings of Allah and read the book and become a disciple just like you're a disciple of Jesus Christ. You can become devoted. There are people obviously in our world who do that, who die, who kill others for that, who die for their beliefs. They are disciples. Christianity is not the only religion that you're a disciple of a man that walked this earth. The difference is what Christianity has is it has the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Remember in the book of Acts chapter 2 Peter said that Jesus has ascended, been exalted, sitting at the right hand of His Father, and the Father gave the promise of the Holy Spirit to His Son so that Christ could give the Holy Spirit to His people which they just witnessed that day, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Peter says, this is how it happens. This is what's going on. In other words, it is the Spirit of Christ. It's not somebody else that's showing up. It's just, it is Christ's Spirit himself, the Holy Spirit. So go back to J.I. Packer's quote, the essence of the Holy Spirit's ministry is this, to mediate the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. The difference in Christianity and any other religion in the world is that Christ is real among us today. He's not in just a book, but His Spirit, His power, His presence, His person is inside of us through the power of His Spirit. It is a radically different way of looking at religion that no other religion can claim. This is what happens in Acts 10. Peter tells them about Jesus and the Holy Spirit says, I like that. Peter, I like the way that you're preaching. I think I'll come down and show up and the Spirit of God shows up and he makes the story about Jesus a reality in the life of Cornelius and his household. Peter paints a beautiful picture of Christ. God saw an opportunity to glorify Himself through the power of His Spirit which is what the purpose of the Holy Spirit is. It's like reading a book. So we've all read novels, stories, fiction stories, but it's like reading a book. and. There are some people, it's the mark of a good writer. There are some people who are just gifted to make the characters jump off the page. I mean, you you feel like you know this person. It's the mark of great writers who endure throughout the centuries. The great classical novels, they endure because the writer was a wordsmith. He had a gift to be able to take the characters and make them become three-dimensional there, there's there's character development there's just there's just such a reality about that person you feel like you know this person that person doesn't even exist it's all out of the mind of a human being who wrote a book who wrote a novel that makes those characters come alive that it, it becomes art when they do that. That's what happens when the Holy Spirit comes. It's like reading a storybook, We're reading about Christ, but now the Holy Spirit just brings Christ right out of the Scriptures and says, He's not just a 2,000-year-old personality. He's alive today, and He's alive inside of every single one of us. That's the mission of the Spirit of God on the earth. The mission of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus Christ. Now, I say that because Jesus said so. He said so in John 16. When the Spirit of truth comes, he's prophesying the outpouring of the Spirit. When the Spirit of truth comes, he... So let me stop there. I think this is really important. Don't think of the Holy Spirit as an it. We say the Holy Spirit like it's an object. The Holy Spirit is not an it. It's not a thing. It is the person of God. It's the person of Christ himself. And here Christ is referring to the Holy Spirit as he. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. The purpose of the Holy Spirit is this. This is the words of Jesus Christ. He will glorify me, and He will take what is mine and declare it to you. If you think about that, that is some of the most powerful words in the Bible about what it means to be Spirit-filled. The Spirit of Christ... The Holy Spirit is going to take what is Christ's and He is going to declare it to you. He's going to make Christ a reality to you through the power of His Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit makes the person of Jesus Christ real in people's lives. And this is the missing ingredient in the lives of so many believers who do not have the Spirit of God active in their life. The person of Jesus Christ has not been made alive inside of them. And I don't know of a better approach than what I just said to appeal to believers that they need the operation of God's Spirit in their life. Jesus can be alive inside of us. It is a reality beyond intellect, but it is a reality that is experiential. We can know Him. We can have a relationship with Him. In the last verses of this story And our prayer is, let this scene that happened in Acts chapter 10 be played out over and over and over in people's lives. It may be in the lives of of people who have a faith in God, uh, who believe in God, who uh, have a walk with God, but God has something else for them. Let that be played out in their lives and in our ministries. This is the Bible way. This is the Holy Spirit's way of working through evangelizing people to come to faith in Jesus Christ. One of the greatest dangers in the 21st century church is to try to harness what God is doing and control it. And you cannot control the wind. And so the things that we talked about when we began this morning, the the church marketing, the websites, the email campaigns, all of our things, we're going to do those. We're going to We're going to put effort forward. We're going to do them. We're going to make connections with people. We're going to try to build relationships with people to reach a lost and dying world. But it will not ever be done with our work alone. It must be with the move of God's Spirit and the miraculous, sovereign, providential demonstration of the Holy Spirit and power. In Acts 10, it all began with two people praying. We are called to reflect His glory and make much of the name of Jesus Christ and to glorify Him. And if we will make His name great, if we will do what Peter did in Acts 10, proclaiming the deity, the person of Jesus Christ as Lord of our lives, God will honor that and pour out His Spirit among us. We can try to figure out the psychology. I I read a lot in general and a lot of the things that I read about evangelism is you have to figure out the psychology of every generation. What's the motivation? What's the psychological motivation of the baby boomers versus Generation X and versus the Millennials and versus Generation Z? And how are you going to custom all your ministries to to minister to all these? And I'm not saying that there's not some value in that, but you can really take that too far. You can start trusting on yourself, saying, I'm going to figure out a formula to reach people. We will reach people through the preaching of God's Word, through the preaching of the Gospel, and with the power and the demonstration of the Holy Spirit. That is what I love about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is transcultural. It is transgenerational. It works in every segment of society. It doesn't matter what period of time in history. It doesn't matter what nation. It doesn't matter what socioeconomic group. It doesn't matter what ethnic group. uh, It just works the gospel of Jesus Christ because all of those other ide- ideologies that come into play, all these other philosophies that come into play, if you're going to be saved, all of them, your mentality, your worldview, everything, must come under subjection to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And that's why all those things don't matter as much because I don't care who you are. I don't, I don't care what generation you come from. I don't care what part of the world you come from, what your background is. We all come together. And there's a singularity that comes together for us and we come and we stand at the foot of the cross as one people and we stand under God's Word submitted at the foot of the cross. And it's why the Gospel works because Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Let's pray. Father, thank You this morning. One more time for Your Word. I thank You for the truth that is in Your Word. We are in a day and a generation where A lot of people are asking what is truth, what can be relied on, what can truly be trusted. And Lord, we know that Your Word never fails and we are people of Your Word and people of Your Spirit. And we ask You this morning that as we go our ways that You would empower us with the Holy Spirit like never before to be bold, to proclaim the witness of Jesus Christ, to proclaim the power of the gospel, the life-changing, life-altering gospel of Jesus Christ that can transform anyone into a worshiper and a disciple of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We thank You for it this morning. In Your name, Amen.